Old Testament reading comes from Genesis chapter 25. Shorter reading this morning, Genesis chapter 25, we'll read verses 29 through 34. Lend your attention, this is the very word of God. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Thus far the reading of God's word. You turn in the New Testament to the book of Matthew. We'll read Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Lend your attention, this is the word of God. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. Join me in prayer. Oh, what a rich treasure, O oh Lord, your word is, and that you feed us and sustain us upon uh, the truth which uh, you make known uh, is a great blessing. And delight. And so we ask, Lord, that you would feed us, that you would posture us rightly to receive of your word with meekness, that you would attend the reading and the preaching of your word with the wonderful ministry of the Holy Spirit, 
who alone sustains that new life which you have brought about in our hearts in the Lord Jesus Christ. Exalt our King and make known the riches which are to be found in Him and in Him alone. Confirm us, Lord, in the things that we believe and retrieve us as we are prone to wander. Raise us up as we are prone to sink into despair. Strengthen us, Lord, as we are prone to weakness. Above all, glorify yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ and the blessing of your people. For we ask in Christ's name, amen. Now, the glory of the kingdom of Gondor is Minas Tirith. It's a beautiful scene. It's in the movie, so you'll have to excuse me. <laughs> it's between Bormir and Aragorn, and Aragorn looks off into the distance and speaks with longing uh, to look upon the white city and to gaze again upon uh, the beauty of the splendor of the kingdom of Gondor. Uh, we've been discussing the excellencies of the kingdom of God, and I can't send you to its capital to gaze upon the same splendor that Aragorn longed to gaze upon. And Peter Jackson kind of captured, I mean, Minas Tirith looks pretty neat in the movie. <laughs> I can't send you to a city, I can't send you to a hill. And in fact, I might trouble you by telling you that you sit in the midst of its glory right now. Because we said that the glory of God's kingdom in this world isn't to be found in a building or an earthly kingdom, it's to be found in the church. And sinners, formerly, who are now being conformed in their character and in their conduct to the most glorious king who has ever walked this earth. We said that the Sermon on the Mount is an exposition of the glory of the kingdom of God on display in this world. And we've been feeling how it's strange. It's very counterintuitive, this kingdom. We're also feeling how its glory is hidden. It's not easy to see for lots of different reasons. But just because it isn't easy to see doesn't mean it's not seeable. And we would do Christ a great disservice if we didn't see it. He's going to go on to make that point emphatically. You are the light of the world. To which we ought to say, no, you're, you're the light of the world. <laughs> but it's this expectation that indeed there is something that you can see, even though it's hidden, even though it's quiet, even though it's counterintuitive. And it is the glory of Jesus Christ ruling and reigning in grace such that you, fallen in Adam, without hope, marred by sin and misery, have been redeemed and transferred into the kingdom of the beloved Son and are beginning to reflect his glory. 
So we said that this picture of this kingdom is something that Christ is doing in and among his people. It concerns Christian character and Christian conduct, but it's something that he does. For only he can do this. But it's also something that we're learning to desire from his hand. Because this is counterintuitive. Nobody desires to mourn instinctively. It's going to be even more counterintuitive next week. Nobody desires to be persecuted instinctively. So it's something that he does. It's something he's teaching us to long for him to do. But we also said that in this, we see him on display. Because even though the three we're going to look at, mercy, purity of heart, peacemaker, even though these things are coming to pass among us, and we ought not to console ourselves if they're not coming to pass among us, they are preeminently and chiefly to be seen in the Lord Jesus Christ, who came clothed in mercy, purity, to reconcile sinners and a holy God. So this is his glory set on display. But the loveliness gets better because we partake of it. Now in part, in grace, through faith, but one day, all in all. So let's consider these three statements. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. As we continue to consider the excellencies of our king and the excellencies of his reign in a world that knows so little of mercy and purity and peace. So first, verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. If you can count, there are nine Beatitudes. If you can do a little simple division, you try to divide nine by two and it doesn't work. But you find four arranged on each side of one. And that's this one. Which is a really roundabout way of saying this is at the center of these Beatitudes. Mercy, blessed are the merciful, comes to the fore as it sits at the apex, the height, the climax, the center. It sets it off. We're attuned to hear something remarkable in this slot. And what do we hear of? Mercy. Mercy is a big deal in the Gospel of Matthew. You can consider or recall those interchanges between Jesus and the religious leaders. They get upset with the disciples for picking grain on the Sabbath and eating it. They get upset because Jesus healed on the Sabbath. What does Jesus say to them? I want you to go learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So there's something about mercy that sits near the heart of the tension that Jesus ushered in between himself and the religious establishment. Mercy's tough, isn't it? What is mercy? What is it? It's one of those theological words that 
we use a lot, but maybe don't have a great working definition for. Doesn't define it exactly, but it gives a couple of episodes. Do you remember the parable that Jesus tells about the king who wishes to settle accounts? And he calls one of his servants before him who owes an extraordinary debt. A debt that he's never going to repay. I mean, it's in the billions of dollars. And the servant casts himself at his feet and says, just give me time. <laughs> I'm going to repay it. Just give me time. What does the king do? It says he looked at him with pity and he forgave him his debt. And then he tells him later that you received mercy from me. It was the pity which stayed the hand. An allusion to Frodo. Pity Bilbo didn't kill him. No, it was pity that stayed his hand. Pity, compassion, tenderness, seeing someone wretched. This man who owed a debt he was never going to impact. This man who subject to justice should have been in prison, should have had his whole family in prison, should have been subject to a terrible fate. And instead of a judgment blow, instead of the blow of justice, which would have been right, pity. Pity stayed his hand. You get other iterations with the Lord Jesus seeing the crowd like lost sheep, sheep without a shepherd, frequently his response is compassion. He looks at those in need, who are lost, who probably didn't know themselves to be lost, I would imagine. I get to meet too many lost people who are aware of how lost they are. And yet he saw the truth of the matter, even though probably a different veneer met his eyes. He saw the truth of the matter, and he looked at them with compassion. A similar iteration when he crosses the Sea of Galilee, and he goes into this foreign territory, and he's met by a man out of his mind, possessed. Jesus says, who are you? The possession says we are legion because we're many. He says, get out. So the man's back in his right mind, and he wants to go with Jesus. What does Jesus say to him? No, you stay here and you go tell your people how the Lord had mercy on you. It's a pretty frequent refrain from those who are sick, those who are in need. Son of David, have mercy on us. Portraits of mercy all. And it's not that surprising. Because at the heart of God's revelation of himself to Israel is that glorious refrain which reverberates through Israel's literature. The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord delights in mercy here. The Lord promises to forge dispensers of mercy. The Lord prompts us to pursue mercy because he is merciful. 
This is who he is as our king. Where do we go wrong with this? Do you ever think God isn't merciful? Do you ever entertain that thought? I mean, she says it right there. The Lord, the Lord, merciful. Again, the Lord, the Lord, merciful. It's one of the most repeated refrains in the Old Testament. And we think, no, something's off. That's not right. That doesn't compute. We show just how dark our hearts are. It is a constant refrain. We think, no, he's not merciful. What does Paul say? He says he's the God of all comfort and the Father of mercies. Meaning he looks at man in his helpless estate and he moves toward him in pity. Isn't that the incarnation? Isn't that the God-man? He left his father's throne above. We him it. <laughs> How infinite such grace. He moves towards us in mercy in the fullness of time. He revealed himself in mercy. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Being rich in mercy, he caused you to be born again. But God... Because of the riches of his mercy, he raised you from the dead. He's merciful. We go wrong at this point. We don't even begin to fathom the depths of God's mercy. That's one way we go wrong. Another way we go wrong is we, we mistake the purpose of mercy What's the purpose of God assuring us, I'm merciful, I'm merciful, I'm merciful, I'm merciful, I'm merciful. Here's my son, I'm merciful. Why, why, why? So we'll run towards him. So another way we get this wrong is we make this wrong computation. Well, he's merciful so I can go away from him. <laughs> The first thing is like, no, he's not merciful. He's like, look, I'm merciful. You have no idea. <laughs> you have no idea how merciful I am. Pity staying the hand. You have no idea. I gave my son pity directing the blow away from you onto him. No idea. Second, wrong. Well, mercy, that means go this way. No, mercy, go this way. Come to me. Come to me. I'm merciful. We think, well, Jesus was merciful in his earthly ministry, right? What does Hebrews say? What kind of high priest do we have? Not just in humiliation, but in exaltation. What kind of high priest is he? Merciful. He is a merciful high priest, even though he's exalted to the right hand of the Father. We get it wrong and think he's not merciful. We're getting wrong in the purpose of mercy. And then we get it wrong in thinking somehow we've outlived our need for mercy. Isn't that where we get it wrong as Christians? I needed mercy once. Not anymore. Those people need mercy. And they're going to get my cruelty. <laughs> because I've forgotten just how utterly dependent I am upon mercy. Paul says your vessels of mercy 
There's a legitimate case to be made that it should configure your understanding of your very identity, a vessel of mercy. So why are we dispensers of mercy? Well, because we get one of these other things wrong. I mean, you say a lot of things about this promise, for they shall receive mercy. But one thing you got to say is they're going to need mercy. You're going to need mercy. Your wretchedness, your need, which is always with you, you're going to feel it. And if you get to that moment and you've somehow managed to create this remarkably incongruous disposition where you've been doling out cruelty to others, you're going to find yourself in a desperate position. You'll have found you have built yourself a world of cruelty as one who desperately needs mercy. There's a beautiful promise here for God's people and that we will receive mercy. But there's also more than a gentle reminder that we are to devote ourselves to mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The text that sits behind this is the one we sang. Psalm 24. Did you hear it? Did you catch when we sang it? Starts in verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false. And does not swear deceitfully. This again is going to be a point of contention between Jesus and the religious leaders about what really makes a person clean or unclean. They're very interested in making sure that you went through the right washing rituals. They're very interested in making sure that certain foods didn't enter into your mouth. What did Jesus say? It's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, but what comes out of a man that defiles them. Sexual morality. Envy. Deceit. All manner of evil. At which point we ought to be despairing uh, in the light of this beatitude. For not one of us is pure in heart. Not one of us can look over the entire trajectory of their life and say, yeah, I've never inclined towards the ill. I've never inclined towards sin. I've never inclined towards that which is evil, defiling, grotesque. I've only ever inclined towards light. <laughs> Can I get a show of hands? No, I don't want to show a hands. <laughs> the light of this pronouncement, blessed are the pure in heart. All of us ought to be saying, we all need a bath in our hearts. <laughs> and again, Christ's goodness is on display. Because again and again, he's going to cleanse with a touch. The very testimony of John the Baptist was, I come baptizing in water. There's one who comes baptizing in the spirit and fire. Well, that sounds like it might get to that inner place. Maybe he's going to access that secret region that the external ablutions 
washings don't touch. That means there's hope for those who have been defiled. That means there's hope whose people whose heart is a foul fountain of sin. This is basic Reformed theology. You sin because you're sinful. <laughs> we got to deal with that reality. That's what Christ has come to deal with. So again, you can hear him configuring this external notion of religion. He's reconfiguring that to understand what the heart of the matter is. It's not ritual washings that I'm interested in. Not ultimately. You've missed the heart of the matter. This is the beauty of the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. There's a lot of confusion in there. Nicodemus doesn't quite get it. Wait, how can a man who's old be born again? But the beauty of that exchange is that a man who's been impure in his heart all of his years can be born again. Brought forth. Made new. It's the glory of regeneration. It's the glory of the new birth. It's the glory of Christ, the one who walked among sinners in a world of defilement and wasn't defiled. Who walked with sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, coarse fishermen, and his touch cleansed them. Their sin didn't defile him. It's the same cleansing blood that John talks about as we walk in the light. And the blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. I trust you know you aren't pure through and through. But I also pray that something new has begun in you. Where you're inclining towards the good. Inclining towards God in Christ. The loveliness of the new heart is that it pumps new blood. Clean blood. I'm being poetic, but this is what Peter says in 1 Peter 3. Sorry, 1 Peter 1. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth unto a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Truth and love versus cruelty, deceit. Two trajectories. One, you see the face of darkness. The other, you see the face of God. That's what he says. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. In what way? Well, if it's the life of love, bear with me. Where will they see God? Where does a pure heart, living a life of love by faith in Christ, see God? Where? When? Now. Here. Because you finally see image bearers rightly. You finally see them as objects 
not to be reviled, not to be despised, not to be moved about as you realize your dark fantasies reduced to objects, reduced to animals. The pure heart beating the life of love, beholding the face of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, finally sees image bearers, finally sees God as they lay down their life to bring about good for others because they see God in others. Please don't write me up on heresy charges for that. See what I'm doing there. John makes the same point. How can any man say he loves God if he hates his brother? He can't love an invisible God if he hates a visible brother who's a child of God or enemies who are in the image of God. You'll see God and that you'll finally see the world rightly purified by God's truth. These are his image bearers. They're worth good being done unto them. These are my brothers and sisters in Christ. They belong to my Lord and Savior. Therefore, whatever I render unto them, I render unto him. The love I render unto them, I render unto him. Isn't this what Christ says in Matthew 25? Come, little ones, inherit the kingdom that my Father has prepared for you. Because when I was naked, when I was thirsty, when I was hungry, when I was in prison, you visited me. You clothed me. You fed me. You gave me drink. And they're like, what? <laughs> when? <laughs> so much good out of this passage. We're going to be... I'm going to decay it here. Don't go down a rabbit trail. Thank you. <laughs> the takeaway there is what we render unto our brothers and sisters. The love we render unto them is rendered unto Christ. But it's not just that. We don't just see it because we're finally seeing other people rightly. In the pure heart beating true love by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. True acts of love, true acts of love, true acts of love, good rendered at cost. What are you seeing there? God, who is love. Again, if God is love... And there is a true participation in love which now earnestly flows forth from hearts made new in the Lord Jesus Christ. The laying down of our life. The giving at cost to others. In a sense, you glimpse something of God in that. You glimpse something of who he is in that. For in this way, God loved the world. He gave good at cost in the beloved son. Are you tracking with me? This blew my mind this week. I see I've got maybe three, four of you charitably with me. <laughs> the other six of you are like, I'm going to call the presbytery. I want to see a present feature in this life 
of pure-heartedness made new in the Lord Jesus Christ, exercised in a life devoted unto earnest love of our God in Christ, which discharges itself on one another, and in that we glimpse something of who God is, and that's wonderful. And it's going to terminate in a wonder that's greater than all wonders, because we really will see God. That's what John says in 1 John 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And he goes on to say, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Purity, sight, these things are related, but the wonder here is that we're going to see him. And we're going to see him in his glory. This is what Christ prays. Father, I want them to see me in my glory. For those who have been born again in the Lord Jesus Christ, reflecting itself in the life of faith, gradually growing in faith, hope, and love, the beatific vision awaits you. A sight more satisfying than any of us have the categories to begin to plumb right now. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And last, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. What does it mean to be a peacemaker? It's not a very common word anyone worth their salt has to tell you at this point. This is the only time this word occurs. But it gets flushed out in a couple of different examples. The first one shows up just a little bit uh, later about a man who comes to worship and knows that his brother has something against him. And so he is told to leave his gift at the altar and go and reconcile with his brother. So one who makes peace is one who owns the wrong that one has done and seeks to make it right by seeking forgiveness and possibly recompense. You can think of Zacchaeus there. How many people he wronged. How many people he stole from. And then salvation visited his house. And he said, I'm giving it all back. He made restitution. Because he had an opportunity to make restitution. And that's right. But it's not just that. You can also think of Peter's question. How many times do I have to forgive these other sinners who keep bumping into me? That seems like a lot. He tells him, no, not seven times. Seventy times seven. There's not a number. So not only does the peacemaker own the wrong that they've done in humility, seek forgiveness and make it right, the peacemaker is eager to forgive. Peacemaker is eager to be reconciled, even in the face of wrongs that have been done to them. Blessed are the peacemakers. There's also this general sense that I think is a good word for us because people think of members of the OPC and they might be tempted in their less charitable moments to think these guys can get a little contentious. (laughs) 
And so there's this notion of non-contentiousness as well. We're not looking for a fight. We've seen this in the Lord as well, haven't we? He's not looking to stir up trouble for trouble's sake. When he saw that John, his forebearer, was arrested, he knew it was time to withdraw. Because if he went to Jerusalem, it was going to end right there. They would do the same to him that they did to John the Baptist. And so he withdrew as one who's not interested in trouble for trouble's sake. This spirit of disputation, this disputatious spirit of looking for a fight. I want to have a fight. I just want to fight. You know that. Ilk of soul. Am I the only one who knows that ilk of soul? Come on. <laughs> There's a world of difference, as we've remarked before, in one who's willing to stand when it's necessary to stand and one who's looking for a fight wherever he can get it. Blessed are the peacemakers. Eager to own wrong, seek forgiveness, make restitution. Eager to forgive because they understand how much they've been forgiven. Not looking for a fight for the sake of a fight. Not looking to stir up strife for the sake of stirring up strife. Eager to conciliate. Mm -hmm. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That's the more interesting part of this statement. Mostly because it feels anticlimactic in the light of the last statement. Doesn't it? The last one says you're going to see God. This one says you're going to be called son of God. Well, it's like you should switch those because seeing God sounds way cooler. <laughs> that sounds way better. But this is the one in the climactic position here. What gives? That's an ancient interpretive question. What gives? <laughs> the glory that we'll share in isn't just something we're going to behold. It's who we're going to be. I submit to you that this one is the better blessing. Because it isn't just seeing God. It's being made like him. You'll be called sons of God in your peacemaking efforts. That means God is the one who makes peace. And isn't that who our king is? His wounds declare peace. And he came and he preached peace to those who are far off and to those who are near. The only word that's close to this word that gets used in the whole Bible comes predicated of God. It's stated of God in Colossians 1. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven, whether in heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. We resemble God in our quickness to forgive. We reflect God 
in our desire to make peace. Because this is what he has done in the Lord Jesus Christ. The great and climactic act of salvation was Jesus Christ and his cross, whereby God, by his initiative, made peace between himself and sinners. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. It's a wonderful kingdom, isn't it? It's a wonderful king, isn't it? A king who comes in mercy, in purity, and to make peace. And a king who begins to reconfigure us away from our cruelty, away from our defilement, away from our strife. That's the glory of this king. Just because it's not set on a hill, don't miss it. Because God has made himself known in his son, who is these things, and in his people, who's coming to participate in them more and more. Let's pray. Almighty God, bless us by your word as it goes forth. Prepare our hearts as that good soil, Lord. Bring forth the fruit that only comes through your great grace. To the praise of your glory, for we ask in Christ, amen.